Father in heaven, you have revealed yourself to us most certainly through your Son, our Lord. We thank you for sending him to save us from sin and darkness. We thank you for pouring out your Spirit upon the church and uh, being our life and our light. We ask that you would edify us today as we study the book of Acts together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, folks. So um, we, uh, we've been mostly <laughs> in the first three chapters. Uh, today we're going to do maybe a little bit of that, but um, uh, we're going to touch base in Acts 8. So if you want to kind of get bookmarked, we're going to touch, touch base in Acts 8. We're going to do Acts 10 and maybe half of Acts 11 because they all kind of tie together. I know it's a lot, um, so we'll, we'll see what we can accomplish. So our plan, um, we have done a few topics. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do uh, throughout the rest of this class. Uh, so we've already talked about things like apostleship, uh, speaking in tongues, the Holy Spirit, baptism in the name of Jesus, uh, baptism and the Holy Spirit. So we've done a lot of that in future upcoming weeks. Uh, if we can, other topics I want to take care of, uh, just so you get a preview of what might be happening. Uh, in future weeks, we'll, do, we'll talk about healing uh, and exorcism. Okay? We'll do uh, the relationship of Christianity with Judaism in the first century. In fact, we'll do that somewhat today. And uh, persecution and martyrdom is another uh, major topic. Church and ministry, uh, in other words, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church and the ministry and how that in the first century looked. Um, evangelism, the mission of the church, uh, which includes apologetics in the, in the book of Acts. So we'll definitely look at those things. The end times, eschatology, the end of the end, promises of the end and uh, the person and work of St. Paul. So we'll, uh, and Christology, or the teachings about the person and work of Jesus Christ is always present and will probably be mentioned and talked about, I hope, every single week. All right, so today though, uh, I wanna just do a couple of minutes of reviewing where I left off last week. I'm gonna finish talking about uh, the Samaritans and God sending the Spirit to them because I just think it's very significant and I don't feel like I was able to thoroughly make my points last week. And then uh, I think my major topic today will be about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit given to the Gentiles. So I, you know, for us, uh, probably mostly Gentile, we, we probably never really think about that as a big deal. But in the book of Acts, it's a huge big deal. And, and not just the book of Acts, but the New Testament. It's a very, very big deal that the Spirit of God came to not just Jews, uh, but to the world. And uh, so don't take it for granted. It's a major theme, and uh, so that's going to be a thing today. Uh, and then, like I said, the relationship of Christianity uh, encompassing Samaritans and Gentiles and Judaism, the relationship of Christianity and Judaism. All right, so like things like the law, uh, like circumcision and food laws. All right. Uh, last week I talked about uh, baptism in the name of Jesus in the book of Acts and I made the point that it's not to be seen as a formula. That's not to say that that's what they said. Baptism in the name of Jesus isn't the words that were said when they baptized somebody. The words that are said, the formula, is what Jesus gives us in Matthew 28. Uh, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When it says in the book of Acts, uh, baptized, they, they baptized them in the name of Jesus. 
that isn't speaking about the words that were said in the rite or the ceremony. It means that uh, the baptized, the baptism of Jesus, the baptism that Jesus has given to the church to do, given to us our mission, to what is the Great Commission, to make disciples, right, Jesus, make disciples, make followers by baptizing and teaching. And, uh, and we see both those things going on. But when Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the baptism in the name of Jesus. That's what it's talking about. Because when we say you do something in the name of someone or something, uh, it doesn't always mean that that's, those are the words you say. Okay, so, um, so I'm, well, I mean, the New Testament says do everything, everything in the name of Jesus. Okay, well, you don't say in the name of Jesus for every, every time you do a thing, <laughs> do something. So it doesn't mean that. It means that you're doing everything to the, uh, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, by the authority of Jesus Christ, at the command of Jesus Christ, and the direction of Jesus, the blessing of Jesus. So all of that is what it means to do something in the name of Jesus. It's like if an emissary from one country goes to another country, the emissary or ambassador can speak in the name of the king. Whether he says in the name of the king or not, he's been authorized to speak for the king. So, uh, so when you hear his words, you're hearing the king. So when they say the apostles baptized in the name of Jesus, that's what it's kind of meaning. That they baptized under the authority of Jesus Christ, uh, by the command of Jesus Christ, which was in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Trinitarian um, and not just uh, Unitarian, if you will. So we, we did do that, and then uh, we talked about, uh, well, last week we also talked about uh, the relationship of water baptism with the falling out or the, the coming upon someone of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the one point I tried to make is that in Acts, and this will be important for today's lesson, in the book of Acts, being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit are associated. Okay? They are, they correlate, they go together. Uh, it, it always happens in the book of Acts. They are baptized in the name of Jesus. They receive the Holy Spirit. And uh, sometimes uh, the, the order of those things can vary. So in one, so in one place it'll say, they, began, they, they received the Holy Spirit, began to speak in tongues, and then they were baptized. Okay, so speaking in tongues, baptized. In other places, it'll have it reversed. So they're baptized, and then the Holy Spirit falls on them. So it's not necessarily so much the sequence, but that they're associated, that they, that they go together. But, um, and, and of course, it's, it, with a book, studying a book like this, we can't really do uh, a full-fledged study of the doctrine of baptism, but I think we can learn that much. Um, with one exception, and that's going to be our thought today. Um, there, there's one episode in the book of Acts where being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit are not immediately together. They both happen, uh, but there's a separation of time and space. But there's a reason why. There's a reason why in the one place, Acts 8, in the one place in Acts 8 where uh, there's baptism, but no pouring out of the Holy Spirit until later. But there's a reason why that's so. So we're going to, that's what I want to, teach you or discuss, talk about today. Uh, okay, so if you don't mind, let's look at Acts chapter 8, and uh, we will try to read a lot of chapter 10, 
But with 8, it's just a few verses to focus. <coughs> so Acts chapter 8. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things going on here that we're going to skip um, for the time being. Uh, I, you know, so, so going into Acts 8, okay, well, we just jumped over Acts 7, which is the stoning of Stephen. But don't worry, we're going to come back. So this isn't exactly going to be in sequence of the, of the book. So we went, when I teach you and talk about martyrdom, persecution and martyrdom, the stoning of Stephen will be prominent there. So don't worry, we will talk about that again. Uh, and in Acts 8, the first part of Acts 8 has a really fascinating story, starting at verse 9 to verse 25. Really fascinating. The heading in my Bible says, Simon the Magician Believes. And so I don't know if I'll get back to that or not, or, or not so I'll just say a word about it. Uh, if you don't know that story, you should read it. It's very interesting. Basically, there's a man named Simon who's a magician, some kind of sorcerer, and uh, he witnesses the apostles uh, baptizing and the Holy Spirit coming on, and there's all sorts of miracles. And, well, he's a magician, so you know, it's kind of, he's got kind of a professional interest <laughs> in the doing of miracles. So he goes to the apostles and says, he offers to buy the gift. Okay, will you, um, you know, if I, if I pay you, will you lay hands on me so that I can do this? And they, uh, they, they, they basically curse him. <laughs> uh, that's not right. You no, no. And so, um, as you know, I like church history. And throughout the Middle Ages and today, uh, there's something called simony. I don't know if you know what that is. But throughout church history, especially the Middle Ages, simony is the practice of trying to purchase an office in the church. So you're a nobleman, and you want your son to be a, a cardinal. <laughs> so you endow the local the church with a lot of land, and you give them a lot of money, and then they'll make your son, maybe he's like eight years old, a cardinal. Okay, you just did that. And that's called simony. And it was, it was a common practice, happened a lot. It was always condemned. The church never approved it officially, but it did get practiced. Well, it's called simony because of that. Uh, Simon Magus that trying to buy the Holy Spirit. And the word Magus is sometimes used. I don't know if that's um, it, what this says. Um, but uh, m magician. Which you can kind of hear the Magi in the, in the Epiphany story. The Magi from the East. That doesn't mean they're magicians. It really just could mean wise man. Because we get the same word magister or teacher probably also magistrate, uh, ruler. So wisdom is kind of really at the root of it. But, uh, but in this case, we know that he's doing, uh, he's doing miracles. The other historical thing, not in the book of Acts, about Simon Magus, is that uh, many early, early church fathers, and of course, this doesn't mean what they're saying about Simon is 100% true, but that's what, but what they said frequently, is they said he's the father, he's the arch heretic, because if you've in your studies ever come across the term uh, Gnosticism, I can't spend a lot of time, but Gnosticism is an ancient heresy, it's still around, which says that the flesh is inconsequential. Mat the material world is at best inconsequential and possibly evil. And so it's any religion that teaches that, and, and it's not just in Christianity, but those who say, well, therefore the flesh is evil, the incarnation, couldn't have happened or didn't happen in the way you might think. And uh, so, so, or you might, you might apply it differently in terms of the resurrection. You've heard all know Christians, and probably we ourselves sometimes, 
uh, think that the goal of Christianity is to die and go to heaven, period. Uh, whereas the New Testament says th that's, that happens, but then uh, the, the ultimate is to be raised and, and bodily. We're going we're gonna to live in a new creation in our bodies, glorified, sinless bodies. Um, so a, a Gnostic couldn't do that. And certain early church fathers claim that Gnosticism was born with Simon Magus. Now, there's a lot of reasons to doubt that that's historically true. I just think it's interesting that he gets blamed for that because every church council condemns uh, Gnosticism. Gnosticism is roundly condemned, especially when it was a big, big thing, big competition. Anyway, okay, so Acts eight. Uh, what I want, and then there's of course there's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch story. Um, but, uh, but, and that's at the end, but look at verse 14 through 17. If you have it open in your app or your book, Acts chapter 8, uh, 14 through 17, which I'll just read to you now. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then verse 18, that's when Simon Magus comes back and says, Hey, can I, get, can I, can I buy that from you? Um, okay, so 14 through 17, um, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans. Now, I know I touched on this at the end of the class last week, but it's important enough that I want to make sure I just really drill it down today. The Samaritans uh, received the Holy Spirit just like the Jews. Okay, So at this point in time, in Acts 1 through 7, the church is mostly Jewish in terms of its uh, the makeup of the people. Okay, it's, it's, These are mostly Jews, Acts through the beginning uh, period. Uh, which is understandable, right? All the apostles were Jewish. They go uh, to places and they go to the synagogues first. And Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. Paul, uh, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, is not yet converted. He gets converted in Acts 9. So the apostolic mission to the Gentiles is really not a, a focus. It's been haphazard. There have been a couple, I'm sure, of the occasional Gentile believer. Mostly it's Jewish. And so I'll talk about the conversion of the Gentiles or the, the sending of the Spirit to the Gentiles in the next unit or section of this, of this period. So the Samaritans. Um, okay, my first point is that uh, they'd been baptized, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. It says not yet received the Holy Spirit, uh, which suggests that it's normal for baptism and the coming of the Holy Spirit to go together. That was the normal thing. It was, uh, that was what was usual, what was expected. But in this case, it doesn't happen at the same time because they had not yet. So in other words, it's, it's going to, but it hadn't. And so it's when the apostles come from Jerusalem to witness this, and then they, they lay hands and pray for them and they receive them. That, that is historically and theologically and churchy important. Churchologically. Is it mission, missiologically, mission, right? It's very, very important. Uh, but, but first, let me just uh, give you kind of a quick review of who, uh, who the Samaritans are. 
We see them in the Gospels, and you've heard of them, uh, the Good Samaritan, right? There are numerous, numerous passages in the Gospels where we see Samaritans. Jesus, like I said, in Luke, tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which you all know, I think. Uh, in, on Thanksgiving, we hear uh, the Luke passage of the ten lepers who are healed of leprosy, and, and uh, one comes back, to only one of the ten, ten percent, comes back to give thanks, and he's a Samaritan. That Luke makes a point of that. And so, uh, and, so, and so, anyway, so they're all over the place, but what are they exactly? They, um, uh, let me identify them. Uh, the Samaritans are not Gentiles, okay? So they're not Gentiles, but they're also not Jews in the Orthodox sense. So who are they? They are, they're not foreigners either. Even though the, 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 um, in, the, in the New Testament, they're sometimes called foreigners. But that's not maybe exactly true. So you know, or maybe you know, in your Old Testament history, when, uh, when the, uh, when the uh, Assyrians come into Israel and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, when, when the Assyrians come in, in the 8th century BC, it says they cart off most of the inhabitants to, to east to be their slaves and be their uh, c- captors. Okay, so they, the Assyrians come, 8th century BC, conquer the northern kingdom uh, and take away most of the people, but not everybody. And those people that remain behind um, uh, evolve a little differently in terms of their, their thought. And they, uh, they intermarry with uh, remaining Canaanites or whatever. You know. So they, uh, they're, they're not, they started out as Jewish. They're part of the family. Um, but when the majority of the population is gone, the people that remain uh, become, uh, they kind of go native a little bit. And so they become what the, what, what the apostles would consider them is heretics. Okay, they become heretics. It's basically, they're not a different people altogether in terms of, I mean, they're still children of Abraham. Okay, they're descendants, same, same as, the, as the Jews. They're descended, but they are heterodox in their theology. And there's a couple ways that plays out. Uh, for instance, they have a different temple. They, they worship on Mount Gerizim, which we see in John's Gospel when Jesus talks to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, which for at least two reasons is an extremely powerful story because he's talking to a woman in public that he's not related to, which was taboo. And he was talking to a Samaritan woman. Okay, so there's a third reason. Uh, and she's known as sinful. Okay, so he's talking to her, and, it is, and his disciples are perplexed and bewildered. Um, but in there we hear, uh, what does she and Jesus, dis- they talk theology. And, uh, and she says, your people say we have to worship in, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and my people worship in Mount Gerizim. And, uh, and so, so, so that's a difference. It's a, it's a theological, religious difference. Um, and John then says in that in that story, John says that the Jews have nothing to do with Gentiles. Well, clearly Jesus did. Clearly Jesus did. He broke that taboo. He broke that social barrier, and, uh, and it mattered, mattered to him. So, so he, he does that. Then uh, there's also the story, which I alluded to last week, of when Jesus and his disciples are kind of going through Samaritan town, and they don't receive Jesus. 
he goes. He, he sets himself forward, uh, forward for them as their savior, and, uh, and they don't receive him. So he and the disciples leave. And as they're leaving, J- brothers James and John, uh, it always, always makes me chuckle a little bit because they're, they're like, well, Jesus, let's call down fire from heaven to consume them. It's like, well, what kind of reaction is that, right? You know, preach the gospel. Okay, well, you know, we're going <laughs> to blast you with fire to consume you. Um, and, uh, and Jesus says, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Um, just James and John, who become very important leaders in the church, they're apostles, but specifically them, are part of the inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John are the three that go with Jesus onto the Mount Olives. And so forth. They're, they're sort of the inner circle within the twelve. And so James and John, and they are they are called uh, sons of thunder because of that. Boanerges, you know, you want to your wrath, judgment. And uh, okay, so in Acts eight, uh, it says that there are uh, some Samaritans in Samaria region who are uh, being baptized. The apostles who are in Jerusalem hear about it and are interested. And so they send two, uh, Peter and, and John, uh, leading apostles, to go and investigate. And so they do go and, uh, and witness uh, that, these, that these individuals were uh, true believers in Jesus. And so they lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. What that shows us is that this long-standing, centuries and centuries of animosity and indeed hatred between Jews and Gentiles, uh, Jews and Samaritans, is no longer uh, a, a reason for division for Christianity. So the, the, the Jerusalem, and so if, if you are a Jerusalem apostle, and you hear that Samaritans are now following Jesus, you might be a little suspicious, and, and, and maybe even a little challenged by that. So that, that's why it's meaningful that it is no one less than Peter and John, very important members of the apostolic college. And they go and they uh, authorize this. They vindicate this, which is evidenced by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And I suggest that's why Luke separates those two things. Because when they're baptized in the name of Jesus, but there's no outpouring, it's as if the Spirit is forcing the Jerusalem apostles to come down and vindicate this and bless it. Uh, whereas that doesn't have to happen in other settings. And it just shows the world that right now there's no Samaritan church and Jewish church. Uh, there's no, you know, we are one people now. And for, for maybe us that doesn't seem too much of a landmark, but it was earth-shaking uh, to go from people we hate to now they're our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Uh, and, you know, so I, I, I quipped last week that, uh, maybe John got his answer. He asked for Jesus to send down fire in heaven to consume them. Well, when he lays hands and they receive the Holy Spirit, it's kind of like a fulfillment. They get, the whole, they get the fire from heaven, but in not the way he had originally intended it, perhaps. So, uh, so, so okay, so that's, uh, that's a sig- very significant part of um, a, a development, that the, that the race or, I mean, they're not thinking of race maybe in sort of a modern sense of race. But, but, but a different people who's, who are enemies, foreigners. I mean, the, when, the, when the Pharisees want to badmouth Jesus, what do they say? They call him, they say he's demon-possessed. Some, some people say he's demon-possessed. Other people said he's a sinner. 
and a Samaritan. Okay, so if you're going to, he's either crazy, possessed by the devil, a sinful man, or a Samaritan. All of those equally bad. So those are the thing. But no longer uh, is this the case. Uh, so the Catholicity of the church. When we talk in the, in, uh, in the creed, the traditional wording of the creed, we believe in the one holy Catholic, which we often will just insert Christian, uh, uh, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's what we confess the church to be. There's actually nothing wrong with, with keeping the word Catholic in this context because we don't mean Roman Catholic. When you hear the word Catholic, when a lot of people hear the word Catholic, they, they think of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Pope, and all that that comes with it. But the word Catholic, maybe with a small c, uh, just means it's the church for everyone. It's the universal church. It's the church. There's not an American church and a, a European church and an Australian church. There's the church of Jesus Christ, one, holy and Catholic, okay, so uh, universal. So, so we're seeing that concept being played out right here. And we're going to in Acts 10, which we're going to go to in a second, uh, as well. Because in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentile. All right? So it starts out as a Jewish community. Now, we're include, now it's inclusive. We're including the Samaritans. All right? uh, same faith, right? same, different history, but same faith in Jesus Christ, which makes them one. And we do see this, free, this theme frequently all over the New Testament, and I don't think we often catch it. So, uh, the, the prodigal son story. And, and many of the parables of Jesus, many of the parables of Jesus do this. Um, you know, the older brother and the younger brother, and uh, the younger brother goes away. You know the story, the prodigal son, he lives a, uh, an ungodly life and comes back and says, I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me be a servant. And the father embraces him, kisses him on the neck, and puts a ring on his finger, robe, sandals on his feet, and says, my son who was lost is now is found. He was dead, now he's alive. And the older brother gets bent out of shape uh, because I've been with you the whole time. I've worked. I haven't wandered off and spent all my inheritance with prostitutes like he did. Um, and, uh, you know, when Jesus tells stories like that, it means a number of things, right? I mean, we can apply uh, both brothers probably to our own lives in various ways. But one way to look at these parables is that Jesus is kind of showing that the people of Israel are kind of like the older brother. They've kind of stuck with the law. They, they, they've been there. They've been dutiful. Um, but they don't, they, they don't get it when the Gentiles, <laughs> this is a universal church. So we frequently see that in parables. Jesus will talk about, you know, uh, I'm going to have a wedding banquet for my son, and I invite a bunch of people. They don't come, so I'll invite others. So, so there's a frequent theme that the people that are kind of there uh, might have to be overlooked, and we're going to bring in the, from the hedgerows. So you see that all the time. Paul does it too uh, in Ephesians, where he talks about the breaking down the wall of division between Jews and Gentiles. Um, okay, so the Catholicity of the church we don't, um, we, you know, all are one in Christ. We don't make those kinds of partial distinctions based on human things. Okay, so let's see. All right. Um, I'll pause. Any comments or questions before I go into the Gentile section? I see one in the back and there's one in front too. Um, I wondered how did the receiving of the Holy Spirit show itself so they knew if someone received it or not? Um, well, I mean, often it would be the, the, um, the speaking in tongues would uh, accompany it or some kind of visible manifestation. We see that 
often in these stories. I don't remember. Does it say that that happened in uh, um, uh, Acts 8? I don't, I, don't, I don't think it did. Um, they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So, so it might not have been. Maybe there was something visible, but it's not recorded. Um, or, or the apostles just understood that, uh, that it was their authority to, to dis dispense the Holy Spirit. Uh, they've been baptized. Now we're going to kind of make your baptism full, full uh, uh, by the laying of hands on them, uh, sort of conferring the gift on them. So, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know if here there was the same visible manifestation, but, uh, but the apostles understood that when Peter and John laid their hands on them, now they have the Holy Spirit. My question is, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, um, did the apostles think that they were going to keep it in the club type of thing? Because um, you said it took them till <laughs> Acts chapter 8 to actually start branching out to the Gentiles. Well, uh, great question. Um, I mean, Jesus is, is clear, right, in his words, uh, go to all nations okay and the word nation is the word gentile the greek word is ethne we get ethnic uh, from that so ethne go to all so jesus is very clear go to all nations that's matthew 28 the way luke records the great commission in acts chapter 1 let's just look acts chapter 1 verse 8 Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will this is Jesus uh, at the, but right before his ascension. Uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So, yeah, I think the apostles, in a, on some level, knew this was their mission. So I don't think it was a total surprise, at least not to the twelve or whoever was on the mount when they witnessed Jesus, they heard this. Um, that doesn't mean they were quick to, 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 to enact it. And we also will find out that there were at least some Christians, maybe even amongst the apostles, but certainly many Christians, Jewish Christians, who were being converted by the apostles, who maybe didn't hear the words of Jesus firsthand, who bristle when non-Jews come in. Or maybe, okay, another angle on that, is that they may have thought, okay, we'll bring them in, but that means they're going to be uh, they're going to be Jews. You know, they're going to get circumcised. They're going to follow the law of Moses, the Levitical law. We're going to that's what it means to bring them into the family, is is that. And so they may have understood at some level. Um, but what we're going to find in Acts Acts chapter ten, a uh, couple chapters from from here, we're going to see more of what that means. Um, and, and so I said at the beginning that one of the themes is to talk about the relationship of Judaism or Christian Jews, Jews who are Christians in the first century and the, Christ, and the Gentile believers. What's the relation? So there was tension. And I don't think we should be so naive to think that now the Samaritans in, well, everybody perfectly accepted it. Uh, I'm sure there continued to be some kind of uh, you know, sort of uh, racial, if you want, racial tensions. I, I doubt if that just evaporated. But 
But yeah, uh, so Acts 10 will give more clarity as to what it means to bring the Gentiles and Samaritans into the... So, so the Samaritans would have been circumcised already. And so they would have had some allegiance already to the law of Moses. And so, so that, that question probably didn't come up yet. Because they're already there, right? They're already... Um, see, I had, had another thought on, on that matter. You know, there are still Samaritans. If you, if you Google this, there are still people in Israel that follow the Samaritan way. I don't think there's very many, 2,000, something like that. But there are Samaritan, uh, a little group, people, still, still do it. Anyway, uh, kind of interesting historically. All right, let's see. Uh, let's go to Acts 10 now. Trying to, trying to think. I had a thought and it just escaped me. Uh, something else about uh, early church history that, that sheds light on this. Well, hopefully it'll come back to me. So uh, Acts chapter eight, uh, 10. I'm sorry. Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read the first eight verses. And then I'm going to read as much of it and talk about as much of it as we can get to. So, so 10 verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision uh, an angel of God come in to say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among them who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so, so Cornelius, a, centurion, a Roman centurion, uh, so a Gentile. Uh, there were no Jews <laughs> we're soldiers in the Roman army. So, so, so he's, a, he's a Gentile. Um, so the, the thought I was trying to capture a second ago has returned. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. <laughs> uh, you know, this, this concept of bringing in the Samaritans, bringing in the Gentiles, uh, going to all nations, that concept which we're so familiar, we've heard so many times. In the first couple of centuries of Christianity, beyond the New Testament, the first couple of centuries, when Christians were opposed by the Roman government, opposed by the Roman emperors, and there were persecutions and, and martyrdoms which took place, there were a number of reasons why the Romans didn't like the Christians. Uh, they were okay with the Jews. Uh, the Jews had a dispensation to, to be Jewish and just have their monotheistic God. The Jews were okay with the Romans, uh, mostly because their religion was demonstrably really, really old. Moses, really, really old, Abraham. And the Romans respected things that, had, that were old. Uh, we're, the, we're the opposite, right? If it's newer, it's truer. <laughs> we want the latest, you know, 2.3 of the iPhone or something. Romans thought, oh, this is ancient. This is an ancient religion, so we're going to respect it and leave them alone. And as long as the Christians were identified with the Jews, uh, just a sect of the Jews, the Romans left them completely alone. But when they became mostly Gentile and could no longer claim 
as, as easily to be uh, in the Jewish branch or Jewish tree. The Romans then went after them. And there were several reasons why the Romans didn't like them, and I won't go through all, but one of the reasons that the Romans did not like the early Christians is, is what I'm trying to talk about. You go to a, a house church in wherever, Corinth or Philippi, later Carthage. You go, you go to a, a Christian church, a house church maybe, and what are you going to see? You're going to see uh, people from all walks of life. And that was, that was offensive. So you're going to see worshiping together, taking communion together, eating together. You're going to see barbarians, uh, Roman citizens, uh, nobility, slaves, men, women, children. The Romans were very conscious, well, many, most ancient peoples were very conscious of class and status. And so they found that to be um, uh, uncivilized <laughs> for all these people. So, so, so this, this idea of the church not measuring a person by their status or their, their um, socioeconomic or uh, ethnic heritage or anything like that. Early church was embodied that still in such a way that the Romans noticed it and, and disapproved. Uh, Cornelius, he's at Caesarea, which is a city in Israel. And you wonder, why is there a city in Israel named Caesar? <laughs> uh, Caesarea? Uh, so that's odd. It's, um, it, was, it was established by Herod the Great, uh, what I like to call Mad King Herod, uh, who ordered the, the decimation of the baby boys in Bethlehem, that Herod. Herod was uh, sort of a puppet ruler. The, Rom the Romans kind of owned him. And uh, to, to honor them, Herod built a city that, I mean, it was there was already a thing there, but he, he ex built it up and expanded it and named it after uh, Caesar Augustus, I think, to, to, to show respect, to show honor. So that's why it's called that. And it, it also tells us that many of the people that lived there were Gentiles. There were not a lot of Jews in this city. It was also the city where the Roman prefect, the Roman governor, lived. Pontius Pilate lived in Caesarea, had a palace there. Now, we think of Pontius Pilate in the context of Jerusalem on, on uh, uh, Good Friday. Well, he was only there. He has a headquarters in Jerusalem, and he's only there for the holy days uh, for various reasons. But he lived in Caesarea. So there are lots of Romans there, lots of Roman soldiers there. There would have been a heavy presence of Roman soldiers. And now we get a name of somebody, Cornelius. And he's a centurion which means that he's not, um, uh, he's in command. He's a commander. So he has status, social status. The fact that he's named means he was probably known about. And he is, what does it say about him? Devout man, feared God, and gave alms generously and prayed continually to God. So he is, as it says in verse 2, a God-fearer. And in the New Testament, a God-fearer is a technical term to refer to a Gentile believer in the God of Israel who does not fully adopt the law of Moses. So he can't go to the temple. He, can't, uh, he doesn't follow kosher necessarily, although that would be pretty easy to adopt. But he's not circumcised. And, you know, it's a disincentive to join Judaism. Okay, so he doesn't do it. A lot of people. So there were God-fearers which means they worshiped, they were attracted to, they honored and believed in the God of Israel, but didn't fully adopt the law of Moses. 
So the Jews respected men like this, or people like this. They, they, they knew they were, that was a good thing if you were a God-fearer. Um, you could convert. I mean, you could convert, but you had to go through uh, a number of the ritual of, of initiation. He didn't do that. He's a God-fearer. There's at least one other centurion, there's at least one other centurion that gets pointed out as being this, in this class. Uh, I don't think it's the same guy, but uh, I suppose it could be. In, uh, in the Gospels, you know the story where uh, a centurion sends a uh, spokesman, just like here, he sends spokesman to Peter. In the Gospels, a centurion sends spokesman to, to Jesus to, to say, my slave is ill. Can you heal him? So this is a centurion in Israel who's a believer in Jesus on some level. He knows of him and, uh, and uh, seeks him. And uh, so, so Jesus ag agrees. And then the, the, but the message is, no, 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 you don't have to come to me. I'm a man in authority, and I understand what it is to give orders. And so all you got to do, you know, I'm, he says, I'm not worthy that you come into my house. Only say the word, or under my roof. Only say the word and he shall be healed. And Jesus heals him. And remarkably, Jesus says, of the Roman centurion, Gentile, he says, I have not found such faith in all of Israel. Okay, so he's highlighted as a, a, a really good Christian. <laughs> but he's a Roman centurion. So I don't, I don't think it's the same guy. He's not named in the gospel. But... Uh, uh, so there are occasional Gentile believers in Jesus, occasional converts. And, I, and the other thing about that story is the word worthy and the word faith. Um, uh, he, he says, I'm not worthy, okay? But Jesus isn't thinking worth. <laughs> he, he's, he's identifying faith, okay? Uh, that's, that was what was, you, you know, that's what made him righteous, not his, whether he's worthy or not. And the word worthy is significant again in Acts 10 with Cornelius and Peter, and, and for that, that matter, the word worthy uh, comes up in the, good, uh, the prodigal son, which uh, you know. So the prodigal son returns from his life of depravity, and he says to his father, what? He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. No longer worthy to be called your son. Now, when he, before he gets there, he's, he's rehearsing his speech. And he's, he's going to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so let me just be a slave in your house. But he doesn't get it all out. He doesn't get the slave part out of his mouth because before he can, his father has wrapped his arms around him and starts kissing him <laughs> and, and says, put a ring on his finger, a cloak on his back, and shoes on his feet. And then he says, for my son who is lost has been found. I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He calls him son. Lovely, lovely thing. So the idea of worth is going to show up with... Um, uh, with, with, I think, in, with Cornelius too. So he's a God-fearer. He prays. An angel comes to him. He's terrified, which is the common response to angel appearances. <laughs> and, uh, 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 and so he says, go send for Peter. Now let me read Acts, 9, verse, Acts 10, verse 9 and following. And it, it's a little bit of a long passage. So if you can follow along, you might profit from that. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, 
and he became hungry. That makes sense. The sixth hour is noon. So he's hungry. It's lunch, maybe. He goes up on the rooftop to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing his lunch, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice uh, came to him again a second time, uh, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So God uh, hammers this, because he saw the vision three times, <laughs> not just once. And so, uh, so a, a law-abiding Jew, of course, is going to follow the Levitical law, which includes the food laws. Uh, well, you know the word kosher, clean, clean food. And uh, if you want to read about that sometime, look at Leviticus 11, which identifies many of the actual animals that you could eat and couldn't eat, uh, including insects and birds and, and mammals, fish, which you can't eat, can't eat. And uh, uh, so the, the food laws were what, one thing that, that, that differentiated Judaism from everybody else. They had uh, specific laws about what they could eat and with whom they could eat. And uh, to break those laws would make you unclean, okay, dirty. And you don't want to be that. So, uh, so you follow those laws. And, uh, and Peter has. Uh, even now, he, he's, still, he's still obviously doing that. And God is, we use the word abrogating that law. In other words, he's saying, okay, that law had a purpose to point to Christ, to show that you are the called out ones. But now that Christ has come, we no longer use those things. Okay, so he's telling Peter, now it's all clean. Okay, what I made clean, do not call common. So uh, Peter has to see it three times, but he gets, I think he gets the point. Okay, all right. I, uh, in my former call when I was a pastor in Illinois, I, uh, I, I actually one day was talking to uh, a, a, ma a man who was Muslim. And we were talking religion, and he asked me, he said, why don't you Christians, why do you Christians eat pork? Why do you eat swine flesh? Um, and because uh, we because we do, and he, he says because clearly you know he knows what it says in the in the Torah, and why do you why do you not do? And I, I showed him Acts ten. I said, well, um, you know, for 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 the Christians, you know, there is no clean and unclean. All that God has made is now given to us. The purpose of the cleanliness rules was to uh, separate the Jews as a people, and now the church is all people. Their purpose of, uh, uh, as a separate nation to preserve the bloodline for the Messiah. Now he's come, so, and the Spirit is now called to uh, falling on all. So that, that separation with Gentile, the Gentile world is now gone. Now there are some modern Christians uh, who, who, who impose this, um, like Seventh-day Adventists. You, you, you know. I mean, it is a healthy diet, and there's nothing wrong with following it, but, uh, but it's not a law, and it's not required but I double checked the Seventh-day Adventist website this morning and and they do they do consider it uh, a law for all time for all people okay so um, I don't know what they say about Acts 10 but um, but that's what it said 
Now while, verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Okay, he doesn't understand it. Why doesn't he understand it? He saw three times God saying, you can eat all this. Why is he, I don't know what this means. He, he discerns, he intuits, that it means, that it has, it can't just be about food. You know what I mean? There's, you know, there, uh, what exactly, you know, where is this going? And uh, so he's pondering what this might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to, so Peter invited them to be his guest. Well, already he's, he's stepping outside. He, he, I think he's, it's dawned on him now. I think he's, it's dawned on him the meaning of his vision because uh, God said, okay, now get ready. I'm sending someone to you. The messengers from a centurion, a Gentile, appear. Ah, oh, okay. I think I'm getting this. Because a Jew not only couldn't eat pork, they couldn't eat with a Gentile. They definitely couldn't eat in a Gentile's home. You just never did that. It would defile you. It was taboo. It was offensive. It was, um, there's another word I want, but it was bad. So you didn't do it. Um, and... He invites them into his house. Okay, well, that's a little less bad, but, uh, but already maybe he's starting to get, oh, okay, maybe this whole Gentile Jewish thing is uh, being uh, removed. The next day, uh, he went, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And he talked with him. He went in and found many persons gathered. Went in. Okay, so, so is he entering Cornelius' house? And he said to them, uh, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Well, the vision says you can't call any food unclean. So Peter applies that. Oh, okay. It's not just about my diet. It's, it's about the whole thing. We are no longer a separated nation and kind of at odds with the world we're now including. So maybe that is when he takes uh, real, um, the, 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 the great commission of Jesus, go to all nations. Maybe now it's starting to dawn on him the implications of that. They don't have to become Jews. <laughs> and um, this, is an, this subject is a very uh, meaningful one or significant one for the early Christians. They, um, uh, the relationship of Gentiles and Jews comes up again very significantly in the book of Galatians. Okay, read the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's the same exact problem, uh, circumcision. The church, which is full of Jews, is now admitting Gentile converts, do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to follow the law of Moses? Paul had said no, but there was a party, a group at Galatia saying, yes, they're called, we call them the Judaizers. 
the New Testament calls them the circumcision party. <laughs> and that uh, they were saying, no, you, you got to, you have to, that's just what it means to, to worship God. You can't be in the covenant without that. And so Paul's saying, no. I mean, that's a major theme in that whole book, so re read it. And he talks about the whole thing of law and gospel and faith and not works and comes out of that. And in that, okay, so in that passage, uh, uh, it, I mean, the, the rest of Acts 10, uh, he, he tells uh, his story. He also preaches Jesus, tells about Jesus, if I may get back. He, he teaches about Jesus, and, um, and, uh, and, and they believe. Okay, so he says, I've come here and, uh, to tell you these things. But, um, okay, what was I going to say? Circumcision party. Uh, well, some of the people, okay, yes. So some of the people oppose Peter for this. All right, some of the circumcision party in Jerusalem hear about this. And because uh, that, that's the uh, uh, next bit where the message goes back to Jerusalem. And some of the people there are very, very unhappy that, that Peter's doing this. So in the book of Galatians, which is written later than this, in the book of Galatians, Paul mentions that Peter used to get, when Paul's saying, no, you don't have to follow the, the Mosaic, uh, those laws in order to follow Christ, he's, he points out, he says, Peter used to understand this, but he basically says Peter has backslided and is now kind of going along with the circumcision party. And then Paul says, so I confronted him to his face because he was wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, Peter. Right? He's, the, he's the leader uh, of the apostles, and uh, he, he was wrong, and Paul pointed out on this. So even after this vision, Peter caved in, apparently, to, to peer pressure uh, later on. Um, okay, so let me see if I can finish reading uh, here, um, starting at verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your uh, alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging at the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Okay, now here's Peter giving his message. So Peter opened his mouth and said, that's always kind of curious, right? Of course he opened his mouth. <laughs> I think it's just an emphatic, right? Uh, you know, there's a couple times where it says, and Jesus opened his mouth and said, I can't talk with my mouth. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And, but in every nation, uh, anyone who fears him is a God-fearer and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news, of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You receive, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he had rose from the dead. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I'll just finish the chapter. While Peter was still saying these things, uh, he he didn't even get to finish his speech. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now I've got just a minute or two. And there's, in, in Peter's sermon, I've got maybe two things I'd just like to point at. Um, uh, one, I, uh, I am impressed by verse 38. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And that is a very interesting turn of phrase. Oppressed by the devil. That is the earth. That is the world apart from the saving work of the Messiah. We are opp- and you know it. We are oppressed by the devil. When I when you tell people this, most of the time, well, sometimes maybe they don't get it, but a lot of time people can maybe understand that from personal experience. Yeah, I kind of do feel oppressed by something dark, and uh, the, that's the that's the that's what the world is. The devil is a much more central part of this story than we typically acknowledge. Um, he's all over the Gospels. And Jesus is frequently battling the devil, not just in his temptation, but in his exorcisms, which he does often. And, uh, and then finally, uh, my, my passage I want to show you, and now I have to look for it. Um, uh, my, my passage that I want to share with you, finally, closing thought, 1 John 3, 8. You don't have to look it up. It says, 1 John 3, 8, it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to, the reason the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, so that is an important part of the gospel. It is, yes, you're forgiven of your sins. Yes, you get eternal life. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit. And as part of that, you are free from the oppression of the evil one. We even say it in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil, and you can translate that Greek, deliver us from evil, but you can translate it just as correctly as deliver us from the evil one. That's an important part of the Christian message. Liberty from the oppressor, from the dark, dark one. Okay, uh, thank you for your time and attention. We'll see you next week. You're welcome.